Lindsay's right. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Lindsay. Just don't come all at once. <laughs> Good evening, fun lovers and seekers of truth. My name is Blades, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi. I want to thank the committee for having me. I feel very honored, no question about it. It's slightly overwhelmed. Uh, I should say serenity prayer, because when I, whenever I'm nervous, I say serenity prayer. But we already said it. And anyway, I want to thank Leonard for asking me. And uh, again, I'm honored. And uh, where I come from in my neighborhood, they call guys like me dinosaurs. The old timers, Old Testament, you know, that sort of thing. But that's okay. And uh, I'm an alcoholic, and I got to AA, and I took the local. By that, that, that took me a long time to get here. I noticed a lot of young people in AA, and to me that merely says, you took the express. You got sicker quicker, that's all. <laughs> you're, the right, you're the right size, you're the right shape, you're the right height, you're perfect. Uh, a short version of my story, I could give you a short version. It's, I was a drunk, I, drunk, I got drunk plenty of times, and now I'm sober, and sober is better. That, would, that, uh, that just about says the whole thing. Uh, however, I know that you expect me to go on a little further than that, and I'm going to. Uh, I was surprised when uh, Lenny asked me to uh, chair the meeting, because I'm not as such as a celebrity speaker, but uh, I, I, I took on the commitment. And the reason why I say that is because there was a time when I was going to a meeting in Queens. I was uh, kind of new, and there was a guy I'd seen at meetings in a bus stop. And he was obviously going to the meeting. I didn't know him, but I'd seen him around for a while. He was newer than me. And I pulled up alongside the bus stop, and I says, get in. Uh, I says, so where are you going? He says, I'm going to the meeting. I says, he's, I says where, which one are you going to? Because there was two meetings very close by on the same route. He says, well, I can't make up my mind whether to go to Elmhurst or Jackson Heights. I said, well, I'm going to Jackson Heights. He says, uh, well, I don't know. And I said, well, uh, why? He says, why are you going to Jackson Heights? I said, well, I'm the speaker there tonight. He says, drop me off at Elmhurst. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> you know, I come from a pretty stable home. My father's a great guy, uh, honest guy, straight as an arrow type of guy. And uh, I noticed a lot of people that I, I heard in AA, they all come from nice, happy homes. And I wondered whether or not I've ever, never heard a guy say he came from a good, raunchy mafia home. Everybody comes from a nice, and I did too. Uh, my mother was a pushover, but my father was a stern guy, and a very fair type of guy, worked very hard. Uh, can't remember anything about my childhood, I imagine it was kind of normal, I expect. But when I got to high school, I learned about smoking, drinking, and guys had money, and they talked about girls, up until this time, my 13, 14 years old, I didn't know about these things. I was kind of sheltered, but boy, I, I, I grew up real quick. I got right onto that. I loved it, and I loved hanging out with the older guys, and I couldn't wait to grow up. And then it occurred to me, just now, if I was in such a, if I had such a happy childhood, why was I in such a hurry to grow up? <laughs> maybe it was, maybe it wasn't all that happy. <laughs> and. Uh, I, I learned about uh, uh, the, the things that the older boys did, and I like to hang out with the older guys. And uh, in the summertime comes, uh, you're off from school, so I get a summer job, and 
I got a job in a junk shop. It was on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and they would, where they bail the rags, you bail the paper, separate the brass from the iron, that sort of thing. And the pay wasn't bad, a buck a day, whatever it was. And the arrangement was I'd give my mother five, and I worked six days a week. I'd give her five and kept one. But across from this junk shop that I'd worked in was a municipal lodging house where the uh, homeless men used to live. We didn't call them alcoholics. Most of them were alcoholics. But we didn't call them alcoholics at that time. We called them winos and bums and things like that. But they'd come around, they'd hang around, and I'd talk to these guys, and I found them utterly charming. They all come from out of town. I had never met out of towns before. The only people I knew was my own neighborhood, my own block. And uh, these guys all came from faraway places, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> and they were... It was, these were strange guys, and uh, they, they spoke, they, they talked a little different, they talked funny. Uh, and, uh, of course, um, uh, a lot of them were dr uh, dr uh, drunks. And then I, uh, they, they showed me how to make uh, their own particular cocktails. What they used to do, they used to buy a, a bottle of uh, alcohol from the paint store. It's denatured alcohol, not fit for human consumption. And you get an empty milk bottle, and you pour this pint in this milk bottle, then they come over and bump some water out of my tap in the junk shop, and they shake it up, and it gets cloudy, and they call it smoke. And you could drink that, and you really, it's a, it's a powerful uh, uh, cocktail. Uh, I'm sure they could. And I just, you know, I, I, I thought this was so fascinating, such character these people had. They all seem to leave, they have like a, a free life. They lived without uh, encumbrances. Uh, the reason why I say that, of course, my father was kind of a strict guy. Uh, he insisted I get home at a certain hour. He didn't like my working there in the first place, but uh, he, he couldn't do much about that. And, uh, but he was the type of guy who insisted I get home before a certain hour. And I like to stay out. I like to party. I was one of those kids who don't let the party end. If there was another way to get another couple of beers to keep this party going, we'd have to do it. And, um, uh, and I couldn't understand that. And one day I said to him, you know, I'm not asking you to stay out all night. I'm doing it. You don't have to hang out with me. You know, it's me that's doing it, not you. I couldn't understand why this guy objected to putting some discipline in my life. But anyway, now while I was working there, I get in, uh, doing my work, uh, and there was another guy, one of the guys from across the street, but one of the more stable guys, I guess. He, the, the boss hires him, and he was a big, tall guy with a bald head, and we called him Red. Uh, so Red said to me one day, he says, uh, Give me uh, some change, 15 cents or so. I said, what for? He said, well, we'll go buy a pint of wine, and uh, it makes you work better, you feel better. And I gave him the 15 cents or whatever it was. He went out, he bought this wine, he come in, and we shared it, and that was when I first started. And I said, it was great stuff. It makes me feel better. I felt uh, warm, glowy, and it tastes good, a pint of Muscatel, whatever it was. And a couple of days later, we do the same thing. And after a while, uh, when he didn't ask me, I went over to him and says, Red, go get the wine. <laughs> now, I'm pushing him to go get it, and uh, that's where it started. Uh, and I'd get drunk occasionally and uh, a little trouble at home. The, my father didn't like the way I was acting, coming home at late, getting at the uh, small minor scrapes. And along comes the war, 1941. The war starts, <clears throat> 1942. <clears throat> I'm 17 years old, and I told my father, I'm going to go to, into the service. He was a World War I dread. He's got his brains knocked out in World War I. He's in, in the veterans hospitals for, for many times. And he says, you don't know what you're doing. You, you, you're crazy, this, that, and the other. But anyway, 
uh, well, they couldn't keep me in school. I was a drop. I had dropped out of school after that. Uh, in fact, when I went back to school after I'd been working a couple of seasons in a junkyard, I, I couldn't imagine why anybody would want to go to school. I was had a job, and what are they going to show me anyway? I, I know it all. Uh, you know, all you got to do is put a few bucks together, and you're all right. And I can always get a job. I was a pretty good hustler. I, I could earn pretty good. Uh, but anyway, uh, when he couldn't, my father couldn't keep me in school, he insisted that, okay, you're going to go to work in the daytime. However, you're going to go to school at night. And that lasted a couple of days, you know, that sort of thing. And then when I tried to get into the service, he tried to talk me out of it, and I told him I'd run away if you don't sign me in. And we fought back and forth, but eventually I prevailed. I wound up in the service. I got into the service and uh, joined the Navy and uh, see, what, see, see what happens. Uh, I was in boot camp, and after boot camp, whatever the amount of weeks it is, I forget now, you get a leave. And they send us out on a leave in a small town, Geneva, New York. And the first thing you know, the guys I hung out with, I would, would you always gravitate to these drinkers, you know that. So uh, I go into this bar, and we're drinking beer. It was a beer bar. And uh, I'm making noise, and I'm drunk, and the guy's going to throw me out. Uh, so um, I, uh, I wouldn't go out, and he insisted. I took a and I took a knife and said, if you don't serve us beer, this is going to write you with that back bar. And the guys are holding me back, and I'm trying to throw it in there. Anyway, they threw us out. Got back, and I, that was fun. We had fun. It was hilarious. Uh, went to a service school in Minnesota through the Navy. I wound up on the West Coast, picked up a, a ship, and went out at sea. And, uh, uh, and that was it. We, I went to Pearl Harbor, come back to the States. I was attached to a ship that was sunk there, and we were rehabilitating it. And while we're in uh, Seattle, or Bremerton Navy Yard, we used to take the ferry from Bremerton Navy Yard to, uh, to Seattle, and uh, at that time you used to have a ration card. Liquor was rationed in those days. You had to have a card, and you had a pint a week. Uh, they'd punch the card if, uh, every time you took a pint. If you didn't take a pint, you had a quart the next week. Uh, I was underage, but I always had somebody who was older than me that had a card that I could use, and anyway, I got a quarter of liquor, and I'm drinking it with this date I had in Seattle, and in the morning, when I had to go back to the ship, uh, I had about two inches in the bottom of a bottle of uh, a quarter of liquor, and the girl said, why don't you leave that here? You'll come back uh, later on when you get your next leave. No, no, I'm not leaving that. I said, I'm taking this with me, and she said, well, you're going back to the ship. I said, no, I'll drink it on the ferry. I got on the ferry, and I fell asleep. Got off the ferry, going to go back to the ship, I took a shoelace off for one shoe, I put the bottom of the bottle in the other stock, and I tied the shoelace around the neck, and I tried to get aboard ship with this, I stepped down, out the bottle came, the guy picked it up, he made me a prisoner at large, my, my record wasn't all that good, I had a captain's mast, and uh, so I had a deck court martial, and I wound up with the first of many scrapes, which was 10 days in jail in a brig, and a loss of, a, a one month's loss of pay. And I, I came out, and then we'd go to sea, and, uh, and then everything would be all right until we get into a port. Get into a port, and it's trouble all over again. I've been to so many places, and I hardly remember any of them. The nearest thing I know about going into these strange towns and these strange countries was that the nearest bar to the, the point of where you docked, you look in there, you probably find it. Uh, in other words, uh, it's like uh, the short, another short version of uh, my drinking story is that uh, it was one largely of boredom punctuated only by occasional terror. Most of the time I spent in bars. Very little else happened. 
I didn't catch for too many other activities. And uh, so uh, now I, I had another problem. I stayed off leave. I got demoted. I, uh, I, I see I could hustle, build up a rate, and then lose it when I got it to shore. Some other trouble. Uh, on board a ship, I learned how to make, uh, when I couldn't sneak whiskey aboard, I learned how to make alcohol from, um, from hair tonic. You could take Vitalis, and I was in a boiler repair gang, so there was plenty of tools and all the equipment was available, and I could take a, a, a six-ounce bottle of hair tonic and distill about two ounces of alcohol out of that. You mix it with cold coffee, and it was delicious. <laughs> and that was the drink. That was the and that was the drink of choice. How to have it. Uh, got discharged in Seattle. I made my way back home. I'd uh, mustering out pay, plenty of money, and I took uh, uh, a trip back home, which was wild. I stopped in several places along the way. In Minneapolis, I met a girl who I later married, and uh, and I finally got back to New York. Now I'm back in New York, and uh, the war's over, and uh, here I am, the discharged uh, hero, and look out, world, here I come. I was 140 pounds of twisted steel and passion. <laughs> Nothing has stopped me now. And uh, I courted this girl back and forth. I went there a few times. She came to New York a few times. And one day when I was in, with her in Minneapolis, where she come from, I called my sister up. I said, send me 250 bucks. She said, what for? As I'm getting married. Can't you do things like everybody else? Bring her here. Let's meet it. No, no, no. So, okay, we get married, and we get married in this hotel, and uh, she made all the arrangements. And uh, now that uh, this banquet's going on, a little dinner, and her mother was there, and her sister, and the relatives, and I was nowhere to be found, couldn't find me. They looked all over the hotel, and they finally went down to the bar, which was in the lounge of the hotel, and I was in there holding court to, to tell these guys what the whole world and story was all about. <laughs> And uh, she comes down and she says, you know, she looked at me at the bar and she said, I'm married four hours, I'm a bar widow already. And uh, we laughed at that, that was funny. So came to New York, got an apartment, total disaster. She wanted to play house, I wanted to go to the saloon and drink. And there was a friend of mine who had a backyard that they used to, we used to use it as a playground. We used to play cards and drink beer in this backyard and that every Sunday I had to go there and she hated it. She was miserable. She missed her family. I took this young innocent girl from her family, took her to New York and made her life real miserable. From a nice sweet young kid, this girl became, uh, uh, she, was, she really hated me. It was one of those love-hate relationships. I loved her, she hated me. <laughs> and. <laughs> from this sweet young thing, I think for a while there, she was saving up um, a change and trying to get enough money to get a mafia guy to break my legs. That's a, what she thought of me. Anyway, uh, the, the marriage eventually broke up. She went back, and I went back to try to get her to come back. She wouldn't come back. And anyway, the marriage ended. I was devastated. I didn't think it was a good idea. But anyway, but I consoled myself. I said to myself, you know, really, it's not that bad. Who needs this square-ass broad to tell you when to drink and when not to drink? <laughs> Forget about it. So I wound up, I got an apartment over a grocery store in Brooklyn, 
a rat and roach infested place. I made a deal with the landlord that I would put water in the boiler down in the basement if he gave me a low rent. The low rent was $20 a month. And though I was working and I was a hustler and I could work, when I straightened out, I could work. Uh, I went, I made this deal with this guy and you know I had trouble coming up with that $20 occasionally. There was a bar down the block where I had to run up a tab. My tabs were $70, $80 a week. Always paid those tabs. I had to have that credit. And one time somebody said to me, you know, your bar tabs are something over here. I said, well, wait a minute now. It's not only drinking. After all, I do eat lunches there occasionally. He says, what? What do you do? Have a whiskey sandwich? <laughs> what do you mean you have lunch there? What do you eat? A, Swiss, uh, a cheese on a roll? So, I, well, anyway, uh, but that was important to me to keep that... Uh, that that arrangement where I could have a source to have my drinks and where I could hang out. About this time, I'm starting to get the anxiety, the, the morning drink. I'm starting to drink in the morning. I found out that if you took a few belts in the morning, uh, you, the hangovers weren't that bad. And uh, the only way to deal with serious hangovers and shakes is to get re-drunk. I'm carrying a whiskey in the car. I can't get to work. I fill up a Coke bottle, take it with me to work, but at the job was okay because I had liquor in the locker. And, uh, and the anxiety starts, then the paranoia starts. Paranoia. And I'm becoming paranoia. People are out to get me. I'm sleeping. I got a gun. I'm sleeping with the gun next to me in the bed uh, in case somebody comes in and breaks my door down and robs something. I can't imagine why. Yeah, I, I, I live on a second floor. The guy comes through the window, you know. Uh, but I, I made sure that the gun was always with me, and I don't know why. I was so terrified of uh, what people were saying. And I wound up uh, in Keeks County Mental Hospital in, in, the, in, Queen, in Brooklyn, and it's, it's not a place you want to be. I was sitting on an oak bench waiting to be admitted, and I was in very bad shape. And I looked uh, at two guys, two guards. One guy looked like Will Chamberlain, the other guy looked like Fraser, getting ready to take me away. And I said, oh, man. I said to myself, man, I'm a far, far cry from where I want to be. Uh, and I turned around. When they were distracted with another patient, I hit the door, and, man, I ran down that street to Lennox, and I escaped. I escaped for a while anyway, but I had to wind up back in there. <laughs> now I got a psychiatrist over there, and there's a guy, and, and I'm having a problem because I'm hallucinating, and, it, and I, when I come off of drinking, there was a, a guy with a big head following me around, <laughs> and he terrified me. Oh, I, that guy scared the hell out of me. And one time, I'm, and one time was really bad. I met him on a subway. He was sitting across from me. Nobody was in the subway car but me, and he was sitting across from me. Man, I was going to jump on that track. I just couldn't get away from him. I ran upstairs. I found the bar, and I got a seven or eight shots in me, and I, he went away. <laughs> now, I, I met the psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist asked me all kinds of He's asked me questions. He, he, I did most of the talking. And I don't know about psychiatry. It seemed to me that... I don't know what he wanted me to say. So I'm making up stories about my mother. Don't they want to hear about your, your childhood? I don't know what to tell him. So I keep telling him different stories, and he says, no, no, no. Then I told him about this guy, the, the guy with the big head. And 
but I didn't want to talk about it because it was even then thinking about it used to terrorize me. I didn't want to think about it. And every time I changed the subject, he'd say, no, no, tell me about the phenomenon of the man with the big head. <laughs> I said, I want to talk about that guy. It, it was terrifying. So, but anyway, now I'm in this local joint and I'm drinking. I have trouble making the rent. Con Ed, that's the utility company in New York, turns the power off. I can't pay the electric bill. I'm a smart kid. I know how to turn it back on. I go down and I turn it on. And one day I come home and I'm going to power it off. They turned it off again. I'll go down and put a jumper on. I go down. They took the meter out. I got no power. I got to hustle borrow some money because I have to go get the utility company to turn the power on. $20 a month rent. I can't make the rent and I can't make the electric bill. And, and I worked. And I, and I had a fair... I, I, when I worked, I was in pretty good shape. Now, I was invited in this little story uh, I, I, that brings me back to my thinking process. I had a wedding. Somebody I had to go to a wedding, a cousin of mine or something. And this was very rare because my family, since, you know, don't invite him over. He's only going to cause an argument. He's going to vomit on your bedspread. Please don't. He's going to fight with everybody. Don't invite him. They, they, they gave me a wide berth. Not too many people. I borrowed money, whoever I could, caring whether or not I paid it back. And and I I, I was another pleasant person. So I'm in a. I got to go to this wedding, and I'm looking down. I'm down on my last pair of brown shoes with one heel. Oh man! Now what do I do? I says, Oh well, this payday. I'll go buy a pair of shoes. I'll go to Floorsheim and get a pair of shoes. So. I'm in, where do I go? I go to the bar first to think it over, right? So I'm in a bar and I'm drinking, and I'm saying, at that time, I think a pair of shoes was 20 bucks or so. I'm going back a long time ago, back in the 50s and 60s. And uh, I said to myself, you know, why should I go buy a pair of floor shines? I'll go to Tomic Can. Half the price just as good. <laughs> All right, so that means I could stay another few more minutes and drink another drink, have another drink, have another drink. And I said, Jesus, Tom, I can't shoes, man. And I'm looking at my money. I'm running low. I look down at my shoes. I says, you know, I'll bet you Tony could really shine these up for me. <laughs> I'll go to Tony. He'll give me a shine. I'll get a heel put on. I'll be all right. It's symbolic of the type of living. You know, uh, there was times when I'd uh, have uh, some... Uh, recoveries where I, I could not drink for a while or cut it down and sort of recover a little bit. And uh, then I had a, a couple of accidents. And then in order to make money, I got a guy who, a very unsavory character who I knew in Brooklyn. He, he showed me how to stage an accident to collect money from the insurance company. <laughs> so I get in my car and he's got his daughter in his car. We knew the insurance adjuster. And I pretended to bang his car in the back, and we got the insurance company to make a big settlement. We made a lot of money. At that time, I was into, now, before that, I met a guy, and I was complaining to him about hangovers. He says, you know, he says, you're better off with smoking pot. He says, it's like, I says, what, what do you do, Nate? He says, you have a couple of joints. It's like having eight scotches without a hangover. Not bad. So anyway, I got at the pot, and, uh, and we used to mix it with hash. I always like to mix the pot with the hash. But my first love was the booze. I always went back to that. 
So now uh, we collected a lot of money from this insurance company, and I had to celebrate. So what I did is I bought a lot of whiskey, and I bought a lot of pot, I bought a lot of hash, and I threw a pot party. I got all my friends drinking and smoking, drinking and smoking in this place. And we'd be there killing roaches and <laughs> drinking. And uh, in about three or four days, I was broke. Same old story. Back to the same thing. Uh, I met a girl who worked on the Bowery. I never lived on the Bowery, but I loved to drink on the Bowery. In other words, this was that syndrome of looking down at somebody worse than you, I think. I always, in fact, even in the service, when I ran with the guys in the service, I always liked to run with one guy who was crazier than me, and I loved it for that reason. I could always say, yeah, we're not friggin' bad. Uh, so now uh, I'm in, uh, uh, I'm growing with this girl, and, and uh, she was, uh, uh, I'm, uh, no question about it, an alcoholic just like me. Uh, but she worked as a barmaid in a very uh, sleazy joint in, in the bar. And at that time, in New York City, on Sundays, the law was you couldn't drink before 1 o'clock. The bars opened at 1 o'clock. And we'd be partying Saturday night and this, that, and the other. And then 1 o'clock, we'd get up, or close to 1 o'clock. She'd say, come on, i got to go to work. All right, so I'd take her to work on, on the Bowery. And outside the place, there would always be a few guys waiting the winos for the place to open up. So the place would open up, and this guy, Georgie, he used to give you the first glass of wine. It was the eye-opener for 10 cents. The, after that, they were a quarter, I think. But that first one was, was 10 cents. So what I'd do is I'd go in there, get up to the bar. My girlfriend would be behind the bar. And I'd get about seven or eight of these guys around me. Come here, get around me. They're all around me. And I'd buy them their first eye-opener. That 60 or 70 cents I spent... And there I was like the big shot. So now I could hold court. And I'd tell these guys what life was all about. <laughs> and we used to, when we were smoking cigarettes, you'd light up a cigarette, take three or four puffs, and you'd throw it on the ground as a stone marble floor. And you'd watch some guy go snatch it up and grab it and smoke it. I felt like I was, uh, you know, the big uh, philanthropist, throwing my cigarettes for other people to go grab them. And here I am buying these guys 10-cent wines, the big shot. And it, 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 that was uh, the sickness of uh, the attitudes that I had. Uh, I had lost my license. I had, uh, this was an incident where I had a couple of speeding tickets. And uh, now I'm in a Bronx County court. And I'm answering a summons for speeding. But I had like a couple of that weren't returned yet. This was like the third one. And there was a, one or two hadn't come in yet. And the judge says to me, why are you getting these? What's the speeding tickets? What are these speeding tickets all about? I said to him, Your Honor, there's a squad of cops in the city of New York. They're out to get me. <laughs> you know, I believe that. He says, tell me that again. I said the same thing. He sent me over to a court-appointed psychiatrist. I told him the same thing. They rejected. They revoked my license right on the spot. Back to Kings County Hospital. And back in. Uh, the hallucinations and between the horrendous hangovers and then the horrendous dreams just to come. And I had. Uh, I was very uh, disgusted myself. There was occasions 
when I thought that I could kill myself. I thought, you know, you know, man, you're just a, an ugly rat. Nobody wants you. Really, what's it all about? And I thought that killing myself wouldn't be a bad idea. Uh, the only thing is, I often thought about uh, if I can only take it back. You know, it's too permanent. Uh, and of course, uh, being a devout coward, you know. You, so, uh, but um, I, and I thought about it. Uh, one time when I was in Minneapolis, I went to see if I could get my wife back. She just rejected me out of hand. And I'm in the, uh, I'm, I'm hanging out, and I'm uh, hitting a bus stop. I'm broke. And I'm in the bus stops, and I'm going through the, all the phone change return slots, see if there's any coins in there. There's like a whole bank of phones. So I'm going to the phone there trying to like, come up with some change. I needed some change to go see if I can get another couple of drinks. I'm in a YMCA, and I got my uh, two shopping bags, my luggage. And a guy tells me, uh, you, you got your, your rent is paid for today, tomorrow on the sidewalk. So I'm up in this room, and I'm on the fifth floor. I look out the window, and I says, why the hell don't you jump? Go ahead, take a leap. And it terrified me. Oh, man, it scared me. So I tied the bed sheet around my ankle, and I tied the other end of the bed sheet around the bed, just in case I would go out in the middle of the night and not know it, you know, that's what I mean. <laughs> I became so terrified of heights. Man, I was, I couldn't go into a tall building for quite a while after that. And I came broken back to New York and started all over again. And uh, I, uh, I met an, another girl I was going with in New York, and she said to me one time, I had many blackouts, like one time I come out of a blackout and I, I was in Forest Hills and a guy threw me out of a saloon for singing too loud. I said, I, I won't sing as loud, don't throw me out. No, get out, throw me out. And uh, I wound up uh, sleeping on subways when I couldn't drive them, when the guy took away my license. I fell asleep in a men's room of some sleazy saloons you want to want. I drank in saloons and slept in, in men's rooms. You, believe me, you wouldn't fly over them. Uh, now, uh, there, was, uh, there was something I wanted to pick up, uh, another point. Oh, yeah. Now, this... A uh, girl says to me, you know, you're an alcoholic. And uh, the, the term alcoholic was, uh, we heard it around the saloons, but it was never, it didn't make any sense uh, in a sense that it was a place where you recover. Uh, alcoholics uh, or, uh, or AA was uh, people with World War I army overcoats sitting around a pot-bellied stove, you know, that sort of thing. I, I couldn't imagine uh, uh, what it was like. But anyway, uh, she insisted, uh, and uh, I called the New York Intergroup. And the guy says, uh, why don't you come down and see me and talk to me? It wasn't that far away. I went over. And I talked to this guy. This was in 1967. So I went over and I talked to him. He told me a little about himself. He was a nice guy. And I had uh, you know, tear stains and vomit all over me. And, uh, and he says, you know, why don't you go to a meeting? And there's one right in your neighborhood. He showed me the list of the neighborhood. Go here, this meeting. So I went over to a meeting in Jackson Heights, Queens. And uh, I walked up and down outside the place before I got in. And when I got in, it looked kind of normal. Eh? People just like everybody else. 
And I met a guy, his name was Andy, and he uh, introduced himself, and he told me a little bit about himself. He gave me a meeting book. He told me about a meeting tomorrow night, this, that, and the other. And he gave me his number, and I took his number. I went to the meeting the next night, and sure enough, for the first time in many, many years, I got through a few days without drinking. And it was hard, it was sweating, and I, I resisted the, uh, the hallucinations. But I got over it. Uh, however I did, I did. And I think this guy helped me a lot. And now I stopped, I, 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 I says, well, I, it's obvious that drinking is making me sick and it's not good for me, so I won't drink. But do I have to go to those meetings? Ridiculous. So I just won't drink, I'm smart. So I didn't drink for a while, but I didn't go to meetings. And Andy told me, he says, when you feel like drinking, you give me a call. And one day I, feel like, I felt like drinking. So I got on the phone, I called Andy, and he talked me out of it. He says, come on to the meeting. I says, well, I can't make it tonight, but maybe I'll make it tomorrow. But anyway, he talked me out of it. And another time, I felt like drinking. It wasn't too long after that. I called Andy again. And one day, man, I had to have a drink or I was going to die. So I said, I better call Andy. See, I still kept the booze in the house. So I said, I'm going to call Andy. I went over to the phone, and I said, wait a minute. He's only going to talk you out of it. I put that phone down, and I says, how could a beer hurt me? I'm a grown man. They give beer to babies. How could a beer hurt me? Well, I had that one beer, and if you're an alcoholic baby, it'll hurt. So, and I was amazed. Nothing happened. The walls didn't keep coming. Nothing came tumbling down, and I looked, and I said, you know, I got this under control. I know what to do. The first thing is not to drink when you're emotionally upset. <laughs> Don't drink before noon. And wait till a party and then have a drink. Don't drink uh, necessarily. And I went that way for a while. And uh, gee, I, for a while I was doing pretty good. Not that bad. The anxiety occasionally came, but I was able to get over it somehow. I opened up a photo studio, went into the photo business. I worked nice on one job and I had the photo studio the other time. And eventually, I, uh, I went back to drinking. Uh, and uh, what, uh, what it was all about is I remember one time I was with a, a girl at the Roseland Ballroom. And I went there and I picked this girl up and I went over to the, she, she said, she said, I'll have a drink. So I went over to the bar. She says, give me a daiquiri. So and uh, she says, what are you going to? I said, give me a Coke. She says to me, you drink Coke? Give me a rum and Coke. Give me a... Make that a double rum. And that was it. Went back. Now I'm drinking again. The studio falls apart. If you want anything done, work. Come into the White Horse Tavern. Drag me out and I'll take your picture. And I, and I sold the joint brick by brick. It was a good business. It did very well at the beginning. And I used to put ads in a penny saver, and I'd be selling equipment. Every Friday, the penny saver would come out. I'd be there uh, Thursday night, Friday, Friday morning. People would call up, yeah, I got this for sale. They'd come over, and I'd sell this a lot. And that was it, and I got out of that business. Now, I go back to drinking, and like you said, it got worse. Man, now I couldn't live with it, and I couldn't live without it. Can't stand, can't sit, don't know what to do. So I says, I got no use. It ain't going to work. I decided to kill myself. 
I got my gun, and then it terrified me. So what I did is I got rid of all the bullets. Then one day I wanted to kill myself, and I had no bullets. And it was probably a good thing. And it, believe me, it wasn't funny then. It wasn't, not at all. I was a far cry from where I had to be. So I said, you know what I got to do? I got to find out what happens when you die. So I'll call up a religious guy. Maybe he knows a priest, a minister. I got the phone book, and I called the local church. And I said, can I talk to a, a minister? Yeah. Girl gives me this minister. Hello, this is so-and-so. I said, you know, I got some questions I got to ask you. Very, very serious, deep questions. Yeah, what is it? Well, he says, I'm thinking of committing suicide, but I got to ask you questions. He says, where are you? I said, come on down here. He says, come and see me. I go down to see him, and I says, I want to know what happens when you die. Whatever. He says, I don't know. <laughs> I said, what do you mean you don't know? I, said, I should have went to a gas station. I mean, you, don't you guys know that? No, no. He says, tell me about yourself. I said, well, uh, my life is falling apart. I've got no friends. I'm always in trouble. Nobody I alienated myself from my family. And uh, it's hopeless. I, I drink. When I drink, I can't stop. I'm hallucinating. He says, what you got to do is go to AA. Go to AA? What are you talking about? I'm thinking of killing myself. You told me to go to AA. He says, yeah, that's the only people who can help you. He must have been in the program. I didn't know. He says, you go to AA. I says, wait a minute. I went to AA two and a half years ago. As a matter of fact, I went five times. <laughs> he says, it's not a place you go five times two and a half years ago. He says, you got to go there and sit down and pay attention. They can help you. I can't imagine how anybody, I mean, how an AA could have possibly helped me. This was not my problem. My problem was that I had not gone crazy. Anyway, I became as willing to listen to the reason as the dying can be. I had no place else to go. I exhausted. I prayed. And you should have heard my prayers. My prayers. Dear Lord, two and two is four. I know. This is once. Make it five. Uh, I begin a prayer with, dear Lord, and with amen, and in between was an orgy of self-pity. <clears throat> anyway, I did go back to AA, and <clears throat> two guys grabbed a hold of me. They became my sponsors, and they really latched on to me. And they told me a few things, and this, that, and the other. I could relate a few times, and they told me that if you don't drink one day at a time, there's hope for you. Uh, could you drink, not drink for today? Uh, yeah, I'll try it. Okay, that's all we ask of you. So I did that. And a day went by, another day went by. And after a while, I started to feel a little bit better. But then I got into that, this is a cruel joke. I'm not getting any better. I still have anxieties. I still uh, am terrified that things were terrifying me. So I went to my sponsor, Jim, and I said to him, Jim, I wish I were like you and you and you, you alcoholics. So you beat up your wife. You lost your job. Now you stop drinking. Everything's okay. I stopped drinking. I feel just as lousy as before. I have other problems. I have to go back to the psychiatrist. I was diagnosed with anxiety, neurotic, and manic depressive. So I said, I have other problems. He says, welcome to the club. We all have other problems. He says, do this first. Give this a shot. 90 days, whatever. Address the program as best as you can to your ability, only to your own specifications, 
and see what happens. If after you've done this, and if you need to go back, then go back, see what happens. But do this first. Well, my experience is that I didn't have to go back. This was the wrench I needed for the nut that I was. And uh, my problem was the, the drinking and, and, and I had to change my attitude. Uh, in the program, I was told about uh, steps. Now, I'm sure that if being an alcoholic, if there was a way to recover from alcoholism without going to AA, I'd have done that. If there was a way to recover from alcoholism by going to AA and not working the steps, I'd have done that too. None of these things worked for me. I had to do essentially simply what other people done and where they had success where heretofore I had not a success. It came to me that how can I expect anything but failure if I don't do the only thing that's successful? And then I had to work with the idea that alcoholism is incurable whether I liked it or not. I didn't like it, and I hated that word, incurable, but it was a good thing that I latched onto that. Because with that idea that it was incurable, I could take the gloves off. I didn't have to fight. I'm not coming back. Because for quite a while in AA, I did what some people call compliance versus surrender. I didn't surrender. I complied. Yeah, I'm going to meetings. No, I don't keep booze in the house. No, I don't hang out with those guys anymore. But one of these days, look out, I'm coming back. <laughs> and I could not get the program until I had that idea that it was incurable. You're not coming back. And... Um, and, and whether you believed it or not, it was a disease, and I had it, and even if I didn't like it. And my sponsor, who was an old-timer, he kept telling me, step meetings, go to step meetings, write your inventory, write. And one day I said to him, Jim, please, please, you're a step nut. He said, that's the nicest thing you could have said about me. <laughs> All right. Now... In this, and then eventually I was able to affect the surrender. And when I affected the surrender, I could get into the rest of the program. And then I got into the rest of the program, but I still had problems with living a day at a time. And I, I didn't like that idea. I said, the guy says, you live a day at a time. You know what do you do? Buy one orange? You can't buy one orange. So uh, then get into the steps. Stay with it. Stay with it. And I stayed, persisted and persisted. And after I got a fourth step and a fifth step, I realized that I could live a day at a time. That's what made me bring the curtain down on the past. Good, past, bad past, it was just as past. And I learned a lot of things in AA about myself. I found out that I was not a nice guy who, when I drank, did nasty things. I was a vicious psychotic. That I didn't have the guts or the colognes to do some of the things until I got drunk and then I could do them. It wasn't that simple that I had to change. I had to change dramatically, completely. And I got into the steps and I became more active and little by little, when I says, you know, if you bastards in it could get me sober with this life without drinking be worth living.
was. And, and then I said to my sponsor one day, Jim, what happens if I can get rid of all my defects of character? She'd be an alcoholic saint. <laughs> and I realized, we have a higher power in AA, we talk about God. I realized, if you could prove to me conclusively that there was no God, I still couldn't drink. I still can't drink. So that's not the point. The point is I can't drink safely. And uh, I had to make amends as far reaching as I can. And my amends, some of them were very tough. I had to make amends to a guy who spent a few years on death row in Sing Sing. I went over to his house one day, and while I was there, I looked around, and I laid out a case of the joint, and went back later and burglarized it. I stole his daughter's watch, gold watch, rings. I stole a lot of stuff from him. Now, we're Brooklyn kids. It's okay to steal. It's okay to burglarize. But not from your friends. <laughs> it's your buddies. You know, you Brooklyn guys don't do this. Man, and I had to make amends to this guy, and I didn't know what to do. He had since got out of jail. He wound up in Florida somewhere. And uh, I told my sponsor that basically, he says, well, you can't make amends because you got this eight step to do. You have to become willing, however far reaching. Don't go down there. Become willing. And one day I says, I got to become willing, and I did. I contacted another guy down there who was also a New Yorker, moved to Florida. And I told him, I says, Bo, I got to see you about something. I want you to come with me. I got to go someplace. And he says, where? I says, when I get there, I'll tell you. I went down there. And uh, I told him, I didn't tell him, what I wanted somebody with me. Not that this guy was going to hurt me. He wasn't going to hurt me. It was the embarrassment of it that I was the guy that did it. Because the neighborhood was out. Who was the guy who hit Jack, Jack Barry? I don't know what's his name. And uh, so, and I went to this guy and I says, uh, oh, I want you to come with me. And he says, where are we going? I said, I want you to put me in touch with Mr. X. He said, what the hell have you been? The guy's been dead over a month. <laughs> And I said, did my higher power make this guy die for me? I don't think so. <laughs> but that's what happened. My ex-wife had moved to Florida at that time. I had to make amends to her. I went down there to make amends to her, and so I did. And we talked a while, and she said something about herself. I said to her, by myself, I came away with an offer to play house. No way. No way. That was over. And then she said, but I want you to do me a favor, and much later. I said, what's that? She said, I met a guy, and my pick, and she had been married and divorced a couple of times after me. She says, apparently, I don't know how to pick him. But I got a guy that work, I, I, I works with me, and he asked me to marry him. He seems like a nice guy, but my judge of character sticks. Would you mind meeting him and tell me what you think of him? Amazing. Here's a woman who was uh, looking to get me killed a, a few years ago, and now she's asking my advice. <laughs> Well, apparently I must have came uh, uh, came some way, and I met the guy. I thought he was a nice guy. It didn't matter to me, but I, I says to me, he's oh, a nice guy. This, that, the other. She married him. They lived happily ever after until not too long ago. She was having smoke and died of lung cancer. But we were friends in spite of the fact that we had all that problem. We still remained telephone friends. Now, in closing, I wanted to say that uh, it's enough time.
uh, I realize a few things about the program. It cost me little to work this program because it cost others so much. Guys that went ahead of me and laid out a foundation and they hammered out this traditions for us on, on, a, on a very hot anvil, no question about it. Many people died that left us this legacy. It's so important that we keep it going and keep it alive for those that have got it yet to come. Uh, I become an Old Testament AA. I became the step nut. I'm, there's nothing wrong with me that if I don't read the steps over and over again, that I will not somewhere find help and an answer. I'm convinced of that in the privacy of where I live. There's no question about it. And then eventually in the 12th step we talk about the joy of living. Well, I say if you miss the joy of living, you miss the whole damn point. There's got to be some joy of living. And that joy of living is in the service. You come to get and may you stay to give. That's the legacy. Uh, I'm not tall and handsome and rich, but you could bet I'm grateful. I'm one of the luckiest guys in the world. I got a wife. She had, I met a woman with three kids. I raised them like my own. And now they're all big and they're all very successful. And they have children at all. I'm a grandfather six times. You know what it is for a six-year-old kid to come up and grab you around the neck and say, Grandpa, I love you? Amazing. What a feeling that is. I think of my beginnings. Anyway, uh, there was a guy who was uh, awarded a big post. He was elected official of a, a, a nation, and he had a big job ahead of him. And he was the type of guy who asked for guidance. So he said something, and I, and I, when I heard it, I was, I said, "This is perfect." I wrote it down. And he said a prayer. It's like a prayer. And he says. Um, I asked the man who stood at the gate of the year to give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And the man said to me, put your hand in the hand of God. That's better than a light and safer than the known way. Thanks a lot. <laughs>